Take your copies of God's Word and open with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's in that portion of uh, God's Word that we need about a week's notice to find. You'll find it immediately after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, before the Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Why would the Lord put this kind of book in the Scripture? If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's depressing. It's dour. It's melancholy. It strikes a sad note in every chapter. It's not until the end of the book in the 12th chapter that we finally get to the end of all things, which is is to fear God, to know Him. And every chapter of the 11 chapters that leads up to that reminds us of the emptiness, the meaninglessness of life apart from God. It's written like a philosophy seminar. It's asked questions, probing questions. It's, it's a Socratic method. It pushes us to face the questions, but it doesn't give us satisfactory answers. It's a tough book. It's a book for our time. It's a book for all times. No matter what the isms are, whether it's modernism or postmodernism, all of us at some point in time have felt the dilemma Because it's the human dilemma of this book. So would you follow with me as we read together Ecclesiastes chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 18. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom for all that is done under the heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's a happy book, isn't it? Don't you feel better for having come this morning? You came for encouragement. Have you received it yet? Mickey Mantle was arguably one of the great baseball players of all time. He 
hit over 500 home runs. He was a switch hitter. He had just a little bit less than a 300 batting average. He did well for a, a poor boy from Oklahoma. He wore the Yankee pinstripes. Some years ago, my family and I had an opportunity before the new stadium to be in the stadium where Mickey Mantle had played. But Mickey had lived a profligate life. He had wasted enormous abilities and enormous talents. And the words that were said at his funeral were a stunning commentary. In fact, if he had not asked that these words be sung at his funeral, they would have been too honest to have been chosen. But these are the words the celebrated athlete, the great Mickey Mantle, asked to be sung at his funeral. See if you recognize these words. Yesterday, when I was young, the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue. I lived by night and shunned the naked light of day, and only now I see how the years ran away. I used my magic age as if it were a wand, and I never saw the worst in the emptiness beyond. The game of love I played with arrogance and pride, and every flame I lit too quickly, quickly died. Yesterday, when I was young, So many drinking songs were waiting to be sung. So many wayward pleasures lay in store for me. And so much pain my dazzled eyes refused to see. I ran so fast that time and youth at last ran out. And now the time has come to pay for yesterday. When I was young. The song echoes the words of this opening chapter. Because it's not possible that you and I would ever find life, ever find meaning, ever find satisfaction in anything under the sun. So much swirled around Mickey Mantle in his prime. Fame, pleasure, money, accolades, athletic ability, and even the bottle and some form of formal religion. And yet as he grabbed for each one in turn, it evaporated. It dissipated. It disappeared because there was nothing of lasting substance in it. We understand that, don't we? We've lived long enough to understand that. There was a song in the 70s. I've looked at life from both sides now. And it was sung by Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell sung that in her early 20s. And it had it had rhythm. It was an upbeat kind of song. You may remember Joni Mitchell having sung that. Well, I've seen Joni Mitchell sing that now in her 50s. And the pep is gone. Now there's a melancholy refrain. Because Joni Mitchell, like many of us, has indeed looked at life both sides now. And realized that in both sides life, both sides of life now, there is somewhat of an illusion. And so our hearts long for more. We grasp for something more. And this is the nature of the book of Ecclesiastes. It pushes us beyond this life. It pushes us beyond creation. It pushes us beyond the vain hopes of substance in this life. And it says if we're going to find life, we're going to find meaning, we're going to find contentment, we're going to find security, we're going to find joy, we're going to find hope, we'll have to find it in something other than life under the sun. That's the repeated refrain over and over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. When the wise man uses the word life under the sun, he's talking about a horizontal life that's stripped of a Godward perspective. It's looking at life from a natural, fallen standpoint. And there's not much to cheer us on that's of lasting value and worth. So the writer of Ecclesiastes responds and he tells us in plain terms, 
because satisfaction will never be found in the promises of the world. We have to find satisfaction in the living God who offers himself to us and who offers himself to us freely in grace and in mercy and calls us to a life that's bigger and better than life under the sun. If you noticed in chapter 1, we ran across several times the word vanity. For example, in verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The Hebrew text has a way of, of, uh, uh, of adding words or multiplying words to emphasize or make it a superlative degree. For example, in Isaiah 6, the Lord is said to be holy, holy, holy by the seraphim who worship him in heaven. So Solomon, when he's saying that all is vanity, he's saying that ultimately it's like the Kansas song, dust in the wind apart from God. Dust in the wind, because everything you lay your hand to will eventually turn to dust unless you lay your hand to it in a relationship with the living God. The vantage point throughout the book is life under the sun. Life under the sun, limited by what we see, limited by what we smell, limited by what we taste and touch and feel. A life without God leads to vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness. Did you notice in the opening verses this morning that vanity promises but can never deliver? That's what Solomon says in the opening verses. Vanity of vanity, verse 2, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does, what does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? Solomon, when the Lord had brought him to the throne in Jerusalem, had prayed for wisdom to lead his people. And the Lord had given him wisdom. He'd given him incredible insight. First Kings 3 talks about how God delighted to give this man wisdom and insight. And a part of that insight is that Solomon was able to see through the, the vapor of this life. He was able to see beyond the substance of this life and recognize that there had to be more to it. One of the leading results of the fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 is that God has willingly in judgment, subjected creation to futility, to frustration. There's a sense of futility and frustration that runs through all of life. No matter how much you like your job, there are some things that are frustrating to you. No matter how much uh, you may enjoy yard work, weeds always come up. No matter how much you enjoy the foliage in the fall, those leaves are going to fall off the trees. And no matter how much you try to cling to youth, age is inevitable. It's just a part of life in a fallen world. In fact, if you'll turn with me to um, Romans chapter 8 for just a second, a quick turn right to the New Testament. Paul comments on on, uh, the reality of this in a fallen world. Romans chapter 8. In verse 18, he says, Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. What Ecclesiastes and what Paul is coming on is this, this thread that runs through all of life. That's why you can never find life in that which has been subject to frustration and futility. Life has to be beyond that. Meaning has to be beyond that. I'll give you an example. I'm grateful for the advance of, of modern medicine. Tremendously grateful. I was speaking to a gentleman at, uh, at a wedding last night here at Gracie Van and and he was talking about medical advances that, that have assisted him really to live some level of quality of life with a pretty significant health condition. And he said, I'm grateful for those medical advances. But in the course of the conversation, we both reminded ourselves that those advances are God's common grace kindness to us. But our hope is not in those medical advances. Our hope is in the living God who's pleased to give those medical advances. I'm grateful to be employed. I'm grateful to to live in a home. I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. But we can never set our affection on these things that are gifts from God. We set our affection on the living God. There's a tendency because we're, we're flawed people to take the gifts of God, the kindness of God, and to worship those gifts, to make them ultimate As opposed to a means of glorifying the Lord. As opposed to them being an instrument of worship. An instrument of rejoicing. We take those gifts. And we try to find meaning and life and satisfaction and hope. But only those things ultimately come from the Lord. What Solomon is saying, if you'll turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Is that every creative thing will experience frustration and futility. We experience it in our own lives. I do. You do. Your sons and daughters do. And so how do we respond to that sense of frustration? God would have it turn us toward Him. That that sense of frustration and futility would lead us to faith and repentance and hope in Him. The observation of Solomon in chapter 1 is based on experience, not just wisdom that God had given, not just insight that the Lord had given, but it was also based on personal experience. Look at chapter 2 for just a moment. Chapter 2, verse uh, verse 1, he said that he tried to find joy and pleasure. Verse 1, I said to my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was what? Vanity, frustration, futility. Emptiness. Later on, he says that um, he tried to find it in work. In verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of trees. But guess what? It wasn't in work either. He tried to acquire possessions. In verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me. I also gathered for myself in verse 8 silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me. In verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And that was my reward. 
And then in verse 11, he says, when I considered all of it, it was vanity and striving after the wind. Because later he would say in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has put a vacuum in our heart that can only be filled with eternity. It can only be filled with God. We can pour our life into creation, but creation is destined to frustration, destined to futility, destined to break down, destined to disappoint. And that disappointment then has to lead us to something other than than the creation itself. It has to lead us to the living God. Elvis Presley, those who worked around Elvis Presley and were some of his cronies, said Elvis was never satisfied. Imagine that, the king of rock and roll. At one time, they said there were three words that were recognized around the world. Jesus Christ, Coca-Cola, and Elvis Presley. And the king of rock and roll was never satisfied. It was said of Princess Diana, a princess, every little girl's dream to be a princess. And it was said of Princess Diana that nothing ever made her happy. Nothing. Never content, never satisfied because she tried to find it in creation and not in the Lord. New England Patriots is quarterbacked by an all-pro quarterback, Tom Brady, an accomplished athlete, recognized in his field for athletic greatness. Several Super Bowls under his belt, an MVP under his belt. And yet after one of the Super Bowl wins, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And of course, the interviewer asked him about his success and winning the, the uh, Super Bowl and the most valuable player and so on. And perhaps you saw the little vignette of Tom Brady. And at the end of all of that, he said, is this all there is? There's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. Have you ever asked that question? It's got to be something more. You got the promotion. You got the house. You got the job, you got the place, you got the raise, you got the boat, you got the car, you obtained the education, you've got the degree, you've got the career. And at some point in your life, you say to yourself, there's got to be something more. And this book screams at us and says, yes, there is something more, something beyond this life, something greater than this life, something That gives us hope and satisfaction and fullness of life. Promises not only are many and empty, but they're endless. Turn back to chapter 1 for just a quick second. Verses 4 through 7. The underlying promises remain the same in every generation. The the packaging changes. The the, the allure changes. But basically, the, the promises remain the same, and they're endless. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What is he saying? This is a poetic book. He's giving us images that, that the promises, he opens with the idea that the promises of creation are empty, they're vain, they're meaningless. They're like a bubble at a child's birthday party. You blow and it, it evaporates. And now he's saying they're endless. That every generation faces the same human dilemma over and over and over. The same temptation to find life, to find freedom, to find satisfaction 
and something other than the living God. The temptation appeared in the life of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew uh, chapter 4. When Satan came to him and said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. The heart of that temptation was not bread. The heart of the temptation was, was to find life and autonomy in something other than dependence upon the Lord. You and I both know that Jesus could have opened a, a, a Dolly Madison bakery in the wilderness if he had chosen to do that. It wasn't a question of power. It was a question of dependence. It was a question of submission. A question of relying upon the Lord. And we all face that. The temptation to pursue life without God. You do. And your sons and daughters do. And our grandchildren do. The packaging of the promises. The packaging is different. It changes. But the heart of those promises remain. Look what he said in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new, it's already been in the ages before us. And there's no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things Yet to be among those who come after. I remember vinyl records. I remember eight-track cassette tapes. I remember cassette tapes. I bought a Walkman when it first came out. It was cutting edge. And now we have CDs and DVDs and iPods and shuffles. Because of computer technology, we even have something today called augmented reality. If you don't like your reality, you can augment it with technology. And yet through all of those advances, the same theme remains. To try to find life and contentment in something created rather than in the creator. That's the very essence of idolatry. We think of idolatry as being a, a, a totem pole somewhere, some, some grotesque, crude instrument that's been carved that we bow down before and worship. But really, Calvin was right when he said our hearts are idol factories. We can make idols of our children. We can make idols of our family, of our work, of our money, of our power, our status. Whatever serves as a functional object in our lives that usurps and takes the place of God becomes an idol. And idols never give life. They promise life, but they never give life. In fact, they take life. The promises of finding life in anything other than God is ultimately subjected and meant to be subjected to futility. Just like the soap bubble at the child's birthday party that it eventually evaporates and disappears. Later in this same chapter, the wise man would say that not only is vanity empty and endless, but ultimately it's exhausting. It's a merry-go-round. You've, you've eaten the big meal and now it's over. You've been to the big game and now it's over. You've been to the big event and now it's over. And there's something exhausting about living for that. But there's something renewing, replenishing, invigorating 
about living in fellowship and in worship with the living God. Notice what he said in verse uh, verse 15, for example. He said, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is striving after the wind. You know, it's a funny thing about education. The more you know, the less you know. You can never quite know enough. It's a funny thing about if you live for entertainment, you can never be entertained enough. If you're driven by lust, lust is never satisfied. Because chapter 1 says the eyes are never satisfied. You can never, you can never gratify that. And we're not meant to. We're not meant to. The three stock answers to the questions that Ecclesiastes chapter 1 raises are pretty much like this. The humanist who wants to make the world a better place says, I'm going to leave my footprint on life. I'm going to give back and I'm going to do something worthwhile and significant to make this world a better place. But Ecclesiastes says all you've done is made a footprint on the shoreline at the sea and the passing of time will remove it. The hedonist says, I don't care about that. I care about me and I'm going to maximize my pleasure. And I'm going to maximize my pleasure through work and hobbies and sports and entertainment. I'm going to live for me. And so they live for themselves. There's always another game. Always has to be another meal. Always has to be another car, another house, another hobby, another toy. They reach the quota. They climb the ladder. And 30 years later, you find out that the ladder's been leaning on the wrong wall. And at the end of it all, you wonder, what was it all worth? Guys, no man at the end of his life ever looks at his family and says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. It's kind of like the song, Cats in the Cradle. You live long enough and you take a long look at life. And you know the thing that ultimately counts in life is a relationship with the living God, which he's made possible through his son. And that's where Ecclesiastes runs us in every chapter. It runs us out of answers. It raises questions that we can never answer with our own wisdom and understanding. It raises questions that compel us to turn to God. The humanist says one thing, the hedonist says another, the existentialist says life is meaningless and so I'm going to muster up courage to fight back and defy the meaninglessness. But Solomon says life will grind you down too. Life will grind you down too. We're time-bound creatures subject to futility and frustration. And the only answer to that frustration... The only answer to that futility is found in the Lord Jesus Christ who steps into time, who steps into chaos and brings order, who steps into meaninglessness and gives meaning, who steps into the vapor, the the vacuousness of life and gives substance both now and forever. See, Ecclesiastes would chase us all the way to the first chapter of John in which the Creator steps into the creation, 
that he's subjected to futility. The opening verses of John's gospel, chapter 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. God so loved us that he stepped into our meaninglessness, that he stepped into our chaos, that he stepped into our frustration and he bought it back. He redeemed it. And someday he promises to lift that curse. And that curse will be lifted on all of creation. And it will be lifted on our body so that In 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal body will be sown mortal and come up immortal. This body will be sown in weakness and raised in power. And we will be made fully conformed to the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, both soul and body. God has subjected a fallen world of futility, but he's given us a way out through Christ. And Ecclesiastes says, come to me. Come to me and you'll have life. Come to me and you'll find meaning. Come to me and you'll find contentment. Come to me and you'll find joy. But you will never find it. No matter how hard or how far you look. In anything else. And God offers that gift to us this morning. He offers all of that and more through his son this morning. So that we may not sing. Nor may our sons and daughters sing. And only now I see how the years ran away. I used my magic age as if it were a wand. And I never saw the worst and the emptiness beyond. Blaise Pascal said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the hearts of every man. And I would add the heart of every woman that cannot be filled by any created thing but by God alone. Who's made himself known to us through Jesus Christ. That's the way out. That's the way out through the one who said, I am the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. Our Father, we bow before you this morning in a closing moment of prayer. There may be some of us who are here this morning and struggling with futility and frustration and meaninglessness. And we may know you. We may indeed be your people. We may trust you, love you, worship you, and serve you. And yet we've lost our perspective and we've lost our way. Would you restore that to us today? Would you help us to see that the job is merely a means to serve you? It's not something we worship. Would you enable us to see the gifts that you've given us, the home, the car, the standard of living that you've given us as a means of of service and not as an object of worship in which we find life. Would you enable us to see that the health that you've given us is your gift, and that it's a means through which to serve you, not something that we worship. There may be others of us here today that we don't know you. We've not come to a saving knowledge of you as you've offered yourself to us through the gospel. Holy Spirit of God, Would you be pleased to bring people to yourself this morning? And toward those ends we pray. In Christ's name, amen.